0: He had just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in Jerusalem. They left the city and came to this olive garden located at the foot of the Mount of Olives in the valley across from Jerusalem. Well, Jesus came to Gethsemane to pray, but instead of praying alone, he took three of his closest followers with him, Peter and James and John, and he asked them to watch to wait while he prayed. Jesus wanted to pray. He needed to pray because he was in anguish. He was in turmoil. He was in distress. He was stretched to the limit, sorrowful, even unto death. Why? He knew he was facing death, but he was facing much more than death, much more than his own death. It was death for the sins of the world. In his death, Jesus was about to take God's punishment, God's wrath for every sin, for your sin, all of it, past, present, future. He was taking it on himself, giving his life as your substitute so that you would not have to face God's wrath, so that you would not have to face God's punishment for your sin, so that you could be free, forgiven, so that your sins could be removed from you like a dirty, sweaty, stained Shirt, Jesus takes it from you and he wears it as his own. And he hands you his spotless, stain free, smells like it's fresh out of the wash shirt. Through faith in Jesus Christ, be free, be cleansed, be forgiven. Well, Jesus prayed. And his disciples slept. When he awakens them for the third time, Judas arrives. Judas was one of the 12, the 12 disciples. Jesus had called Judas to follow him. And for three years, Judas had been with Jesus. For three years, Judas had listened to his teaching, witnessed his miracles. And here in Jerusalem, here at Passover, Judas betrays Jesus. We're not told why. Mark does not give us his reasons, his, his motivations, even though we'd like to know. Mark only tells us that he did it. Judas went to the chief priests and he offered to hand over Jesus. These religious leaders rejoiced at Judas's offer. They, they welcomed his coming as a gift, his offer as a gift, because they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. To them, he was simply a threat. Not only was Jesus popular among the people, but he also came into the temple and acted as if he had the authority, as if he had the power to interrupt worship, to create chaos with the sacrificial system, to publicly condemn their practices. They wanted him out of the way. But out of concern of the people sympathetic to Jesus, out of concern of the crowds gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, they wanted to do it secretly. They wanted to do it covertly. They didn't want a riot. They didn't want a mob on their hands. But Judas would give them opportunity. Judas knew Jesus' movements. Judas knew where he stayed. Judas could take them to Jesus away from the crowds, away from the city. And so they came. After Passover, at night, under the cover of darkness, stealthily, covertly, quietly, they came to Gethsemane, away from the city, away from the crowds. But Judas brought one with him. Judas led an armed crowd. They came with swords. They came with clubs. They came ready for trouble, ready for action. This crowd was made up in part by the temple police. This was the security force under the power of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling Jewish council made up of the chief priests and scribes and elders. And although Mark does not mention it, Roman soldiers were also included in this armed crowd, all led by Judas. Judas had given the crowd with him a sign. He'd given them a signal. Remember, it was dark. They didn't want to grab the wrong guy by mistake and let the right one escape. They would know who to seize. They would know who to arrest through this sign. Judas would kiss the one they were to seize. For the armed crowd stays back and Judas approaches Jesus and he greets him, Rabbi, my great one. And he kisses him. Now, often rabbis and students would greet one another with a kiss. It was a gesture of respect. But Judas does not simply give Jesus, Jesus a peck on the cheek. This kiss is more than the gesture of respect normally given. The Greek word used here for kiss can refer to a lavish kiss, an intense kiss. This is betrayal through deception. Judas speaks a title of honor. He offers an act of affection, rabbi, a kiss. And both are false. Both are actually used to ridicule, to deride, to scorn. The mockery of Jesus that he faces on trial, the mockery of Jesus that he endures on the cross begins here, begins with Judas. As he betrays Jesus, he mocks him. He uses a title of respect, and a gesture of love for a mission of hate. Well, Judas' act is similar to an Old Testament story found in Second Samuel chapter 20. When David was king of Israel, his son Absalom rebelled against him, and David was victorious in the civil war, and his son was killed. But in order to heal the divided nation, David pardoned those who rose up against him. And one of those that he pardoned was Amasa. Amasa was the head of Absalom's army. He was head of the rebellious army. Now, Joab was over David's army. He still held a grudge against Amasa and his role in the rebellion. So Joab sought out Amasa. And upon finding him, Joab asked him a question. Is it well with you, my brother? Calls him brother. Then Joab kisses Amasa. And as he kisses him, he stabs him in the stomach. Words of respect. Affection. Brother, a gesture of love, a kiss. a mission of hate. Well Judas's kiss set the crowd in motion. They seize Jesus and in the midst of the confusion, someone draws a sword and wildly swinging in the torchlit night, misses the mark and cuts off an ear, the ear of the servant of the high priest. The mark doesn't tell us who drew the sword, but the Gospel of John reports it as Peter. And in response to the weapons, in response to the bloodshed, Jesus speaks. And his words, although pointed, de-escalate a potentially explosive moment where more bloodshed could have followed. Jesus asked the crowd, am I a robber? Am I a thief? A rebel? Well, the implication is that he is not. And they knew it. They saw Jesus every day in the temple every day, teaching every day, besting the religious leaders who tried to trap him every day. They could have arrested him there. They could have seized him there. But based on what they saw, based on what they observed, they should have known he would not resist. Indeed, Jesus would come willingly. He would come freely. And he ends with these words. But let the scripture be fulfilled. Let the scripture be fulfilled. The scripture that pointed to the fact that this was God's plan. This was God's will that Jesus be arrested. The scripture that pointed to his suffering, his death, like Isaiah chapter 53. And part of Isaiah chapter 53 was quoted in our assurance from 1 Peter chapter two. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let the scripture be fulfilled. Scripture like our Old Testament reading from the prophet Zechariah. Listen again to verse seven of that reading. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When Jesus was seized, Jesus was arrested. The good shepherd was struck and the disciples ran. They fled. The sheep scattered. They all left him. Now, only hours earlier, right after their meal, Peter vowed, or maybe he simply boasted, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of his disciples said the same thing. They would never deny Jesus. Not only would they never deny Jesus, they would die with Jesus. And at the first hint of conflict, at the first hint of trouble, they ran. They abandoned him. They left him alone. And to punctuate the scene, Mark adds a peculiar detail. It's a story that's only found in his gospel. You won't find this story in Matthew or Luke or John. It's the first recorded streaker, maybe. In verse 51, Mark tells us that an unnamed man followed Jesus. That's all we're told about him. He wasn't one of the 11, but he was another disciple, another follower of Jesus. He was wearing a linen cloth, a loose garment. And when the crowd arresting Jesus tried to seize him, they only got his clothes. So this young man, unnamed young man, fled into the night naked. Now, not surprisingly, down through the centuries, much speculation has swirled concerning the identity of this young man man. And the biggest question is, was it Mark? Was it the author of this gospel? Did he include himself in this gospel like Alfred Hitchcock or M. Night Shyamalan in their their movies? Was this a cameo appearance by the author? Or was it someone else mentioned in the gospel? Or was it someone else that the early church knew by name because of the story? Well, the truth is all such speculation is ultimately fruitless. Mark does not name this young man. And like the rest of the gospel, it's intentional. It's with a purpose. This unnamed man is representative. He's representative of the followers of Jesus who were there at Gethsemane. They all ran. They all scattered. But he's also representative of all who followed Jesus. And he challenges you. This young man challenges you. You reading the Gospel of Mark, you hearing the Gospel of Mark, what would you have done? If you were there, if you were in Gethsemane, if you were with Jesus, what would you have done? Would you have stayed? Would you have fought? Would you have followed? Would you have run? Would you have been just like this unnamed man, fleeing in fear, exposed, ashamed, wandering in the darkness, lost? Well, this unnamed man is also representative of you, of who you are. This is your state before God. When you sin, you turn from Jesus. When you sin, you turn from following him. You turn from his way. You flee from his presence. And that leaves you exposed. That leaves you in the darkness. That leaves you wandering. That leaves you lost. Turn to him. Return to him. Repent of your sin. Ask for forgiveness of your sin. And you will find when you do, you will find when you do, that the shepherd, the good shepherd, is actually seeking you out. That the good shepherd is actually looking for you, his lost, wandering sheep. And he's ready to welcome you, ready to welcome you with open arms, ready to receive you in forgiveness and rejoice that you are found. And he will once again bid you to follow him. To follow him as he leads you, as he leads you to green pastures, as he leads you to still waters. Well, the unnamed man in Mark also challenges you with another question, what will you do? What will you do? Not not only what would you have done in Gethsemane, but what will you do? What will you do this hour? What will you do today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? What will you do? You might not be confronted with an armed crowd. You might not be faced with arrest. But what will you do when confronted by fear? What will you do when you're faced with suffering? What will you do when you're faced with hardship, turmoil, grief, uncertainty, injustice? What will you do? Will you still follow? Will you still walk in his way? Or will you flee? Will you abandon the shepherd? Will you go your own way? Will you try to find refuge in the darkness? Remember, the shepherd has gone before you. Remember, the shepherd has walked the road that you are on. Jesus faced it. He was confronted by it. Fear in suffering and hardship and turmoil and grief and uncertainty injustice and death he experienced it all for you and he has overcome it all for you he lives For you, he made the way. He made the way through fear, through hardship, through suffering, through sorrow, through death. He is the way. And he leads you to life. Life through him, life with him. He leads you to eternal life. And yes, it's not easy. And no, it won't be easy. But you know this. You've experienced it, but it is the way. And Mark challenges you with this unnamed disciple. What will you do? Follow him, the good shepherd, betrayed by his own, for he laid down his life for you. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi.